I'd like to introduce the speaker for tonight, Margo. today. Uh, came into these rooms in September of 1981. So I celebrated 25 years this year, which is amazing. Um, but when I came into these rooms in 1981, I was a mountain of rage. I was out of hope, and I couldn't stop eating. And um, I, the thing that tipped me over the edge was the rage because I had two young children. And, uh, you know, I felt my anger was just going to explode. And that really helped me surrender and realize I was just in bad shape. The other thing was that my... Uh, my 10-year-old was putting my 3-year-old to bed at night because I was literally or nearly passed out on the floor in front of the television from binging all day, and I couldn't get up. And that's what I want. I didn't want to get up. I wanted to be inert. I wanted to be dead, you know, kind of a passive death wish. Or it's really, I've come to understand, it's really a death fantasy because it's a fantasy of having release from an existence that was just very painful and, and I just didn't know what to do. So, externally things were pretty good. I had two beautiful children. I still have two beautiful children who are now adults. Um, and I was married at that time. Uh, seemed like a good marriage. Uh, we were pretty well set up. But um, actually... I had a lot of problems. <laughs> I didn't have very many tools for handling feelings. And there were circumstances and conditions in my childhood that um, I think caused me to seek solace in substances. And I wasn't a compulsive reader as a child, but I did get inducted into the disease of Al-Anon-ism. That's another pitch, another program. And it took me 20 years of OA to get to that first disease and get into recovery. So I have OA to think for that also. Uh, and during my teen years, I, um, I strove to stay stoned 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> The reason I started getting uh, high was because, uh, you'll see the logic of this, I, I, I believe. My very first boyfriend, and it was puppy love, we were 14, but you know, when you're 14, and it's very powerful. And it is very real, you know. It shouldn't be minimized. But he died of a drug accident. He was experimenting. And... Um, 
I got depressed and I started using drugs every day. It wasn't a rational decision, but that's just kind of where I went with it. And um, so I kind of did a lot of things that didn't really match what people would expect someone with my background to do. Uh, I did risk-taking. I was self-destructive. I, uh, I was in a lot of pain from my childhood. I, uh, I was probably born with dysthymia, which means kind of a, a low-level, my baseline is sort of a low-level depression. Uh, but I think that just made it more difficult to handle uh, the kinds of things that surrounded me when I was growing up. Um, there was mental illness and um, there was danger. There was some abuse. Uh, it was very confusing. And um, I felt very trapped and very hopeless even as a child. So, And my self-esteem really uh, didn't develop very well in those conditions. I, uh, you know, like most children, blamed myself for a lot of it. Not consciously, but things that I discovered later when I got into recovery uh, where the sources of my low self-esteem were. But, uh, you know, so I just went along. I think it's kind of normal in a way. You know, I lost the God of my youth around the age of 12. And I just started on this path of trying to escape. You know, stop the world. I want to get off the death fantasy. And um, on the other hand, I think another part of me was very protected because um, I was kind of stopped short of... (laughs) really killing myself, you know. And so the next thing I did after I uh, had been doing the drugs for quite a few years, about five years, uh, was I met a guy who, um, he was totally not into me, but I worked on him. (laughs) Next, I'd gone, yeah, I'd gone to his house with his roommate, but when I saw him, I liked him, so... And I was fascinated by him, and really, he was a picture of ill health. (laughs) He was. He lived upstairs in a whorehouse, literally, in Pasadena. He was cute, though. He was. And he's a sweet guy, but problems. Lots of problems. You know, he had crates for his furniture. He was sleeping on a mattress on the floor. It sort of didn't seem as bizarre since it was 19... 70, I guess, because there was a lot of alternative lifestyles. Middle class kids were doing things like that. So I think that just kind of, I think it did kind of cloud my (laughs) clarity of the times, you know. But I ended up getting together with him, and um, I uh, forewent uh, a scholarship to uh, Santa Cruz. I gave him all my money, in effect. spent all my money, we traveled around and camped, and um, then he decided we should have a baby, so so we had a baby, but that's when I stopped using the drugs, the month we decided to have the baby, I, you know, stopped using the drugs, and, um, and then I, I did have a beautiful son with that man, and uh, he got really, really sick after that, and uh, had to take off, and ultimately, ultimately became an alcoholic. Um, not a bad person, just another wounded person. And uh, 
when the baby, when my son was born, I, uh, I really tried to uh, just stand up and do an about face. And it looked like I did it. But I, uh, I started eating. And um, then I met a really uh, nice man that loved us both. And we, you know, he and I got married. And he adopted my son. And we had a daughter together. And my, my eating, my compulsive reading addiction really started with that marriage because I was struggling so hard to maintain a facade because I had so much stored up, so much darkness inside of me. None of this is conscious. You know, I went and married into a family that was prosperous and his mother was a fabulous cook. And we had a lot of deprivation in my childhood in a way, a lot of material deprivation, which didn't match my circumstances because my father was a doctor. Um... So I went into this family. It was like a Cinderella story, you know. And, uh, you know, I started eating just because it was great food. It was whatever. That was an Italian family. There was always incredible food. And and uh, then I went to work my first job, uh, night shift. And I started, I took my son to nursery school. And then I would binge in the morning so that I could go to sleep and get a few hours of sleep before I had to get up and go get him. Well, you know, those things start out kind of in a way innocently, but for me it turned into an addiction that 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 I was powerless over. And then it had no rhyme or reason. I didn't eat for any reason. I ate for every reason and no reason, and I never could stop. I wanted to stop. I felt it was, it was horrible. I even had a great idea one time. I thought, you know what? What about if I just threw up after I overate? I was really smart. <laughs> It was 1975. And I did try that, but fortunately I didn't get addicted to that. Um, there really was only an addict for about 10 years to food. I don't consider myself a drug addict because I did stop. When I decided to stop, I stopped. But I don't really have a judgment about that. I just know that I found recovery because I was brought to my knees by compulsive reading and food addiction. And I couldn't stop even when I wanted to. And I never could stop once I got addicted. And so that was 10 years of, of a slow slide into hell, really. Uh, because compulsive overeating untreated is hell. Isolated. Just, just um, well, we all know. Nobody's sitting in these chairs and coming back <laughs> because they were having a, a comfortable life that was working real well. <laughs> you know, everybody who comes to these rooms has paid their dues. So I paid mine too. And um, I really wasn't, so I didn't really bring good communication tools or the capacity to um, work with my husband on my feelings and my intuitions and because I was constantly trying to negate those. I didn't trust myself. That was, a, that was the Al-Anon disease um, that I didn't recognize. And I just didn't trust my feelings. My feelings were not to be trusted. And once you don't trust your feelings, I mean, that's a mess. I can't, if I can't trust my intuition, I can't trust myself, I have absolutely no compass. So what happened is, as it says in the big books, you know, self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. And I was very terminally self-reliant. I mean, I, I even pierced my own ears. I really just, I would do everything if I, I, that I could possibly do by myself. You know, I, um, 
I just preferred to have control. <laughs> so anyway, came a day when uh, an important decision was to be made in our, my marriage. My husband decided he wanted to change careers, and um, I was not. I was not able to communicate my feelings about that. I just said, oh, you'll be really wonderful at that. And then I cried and cried. I cried and cried for about a year and a half. I felt like I cried all the time. And he didn't have tools either. And we, we did go. Uh, he, he actually became a minister. And I I just, I didn't fit in a, that role, a minister's wife. It was not something that I was comfortable with and that's pretty important and uh, you know we didn't have a way to really work on that together and it did lead to the end of our marriage but uh, anyway we traveled across country he went to divinity school and and then fortunately we came back here um, because this is where my family was and I actually didn't I really didn't like Southern California until I had moved away from my family and then I did get my priorities straightened out that, you know, wherever my family was, that was where I wanted to be. So I moved back here, and uh, that's when, that was in 1981. That was in 1981, right. And I had, just before we came out here, I had gone on a one commercial weight loss program. Um, I had tried various diets. I wasn't really good at dieting. Also, I don't gain weight very easily. Um, so my top weight was... Um, I was probably about 30 pounds overweight. Um, but then I had another baby, and, you know, it kind of blended in, you know. But I felt terrible. Um, I felt, And I also didn't see it stopping. How could it stop eating? I couldn't stop eating, so it was very easy for me to see myself topping 200 pounds. And just. And there are members in my family who gain weight very easily. And, and you know, have a, a brother who was only 11 months younger than I, so one might suppose he was exposed to some similar conditions in the family, and he weighs over 400 pounds, and ha- but has 16 years of recovery in another program. So you know, our family, yeah, there were a lot of, there was a lot of, um, a lot of problems, a lot of illness, and um, so I got out here, and I had gone on that commercial weight loss program spent way too much money and really it's very it's kind of funny because I uh, I knew I ate like the alcoholic drink I don't know why I had that awareness but even years before I came in program and then a woman had told me about OA and it was a very odd 12-step call she said uh, oh I've lost 40 pounds and I did it by going to OA and I just think of food as poison now, to me, that's an example that we can't screw up 12-step work. Because there's nothing in OA that talks about food being poison. <laughs> but what I heard was there is OA. I eat like an alcoholic drinks, there is OA. And so I think it was about six or seven or eight years later that I came into OA. So the seed was planted. Who would think, you know? So why worry about screwing it up? I mean, And so... Um, before we came back from the East Coast, I looked in the phone book, and I found OA, and I called, and it was about 12 miles through the snow to get to the meeting. So there was this commercial weight center that was like eight miles through the snow. So I put down my hundreds of dollars and did that and lost some weight. And then when we came out here, I gained the weight back so fast, and that's when I was on the, 
on the floor in front of the TV at night with my 10-year-old putting my 3-year-old to bed and um, because I couldn't get up. And uh, so I did once again call Overeaters Anonymous and um, from the phone book. But those are miracles. I mean, where does that come from? You know, it's just consciousness. It's stuff, it's, there were enough people, I just did that. And I went to a meeting, and because my husband was sort of a public person, I was, the anonymity of this program was extremely important to me. I felt, I was so, so private, you know. And I was, I felt like I couldn't stand the vulnerability of being known or having people in the, the church where he was a minister know that I was an Overeaters Anonymous and just had a lot of shame around. I, I, I lived in the West Valley. I used to make outreach calls to Pasadena and not give my name. I was very frightened when I came into these rooms. I did not feel safe. I did not trust other people. I did not have to communicate to other people. But something held me here. Um, that I got hope when I walked in the rooms and I can't say what it was that gave me hope. It was just like in the air. And I was, went to these meetings where there was very little recovery. Another example, can't screw it up, I guess, you know. I was going to these little meetings, daytime meetings in, in the valley. And who was there? People who were unemployed, housewives, some of them. There were, I'm sure there was some recovery, but, you know, they were kind of dumpy little meetings, you know. And, uh, but what we did in those meetings, because there was so little recovery, is that we read the literature and we wrote. So that worked out really well. Also, I got a sponsor right away because I'm kind of a, I'm the kind of student that kind of, oh, I'll do this and this and this. Okay, so I'll do this and this and this. Of course, fast, smart, and on my own. But, uh, you know, so I got, I heard that I should get the big book, get the 12 and 12, get a sponsor, choose a food plan, call in my food every day. And, I, you know, the first meeting, okay, I've got that all organized. And I got a sponsor the very first, uh, no. That's not right. I went to OA. I went to one meeting. I got the food plan. I went home. I tried to eat it. I probably ate it for a couple of days. We had dignity of choice back then, too, and then there were, that's our pamphlet that suggests food plans, if anybody doesn't know. We've actually brought that back with just suggested food plans. At that time, we were a lot younger fellowship, and we just thought that was the way you had to eat. So um, I took that home, and I ate it a couple of days, and then, of course, I started binging. I couldn't binge, and I think I binged for five weeks. Then I came back and stayed. And at that meeting, I got a sponsor, and she gave me that good advice, get the big book, get the AA 12 and 12. We didn't have our, our OA book yet. Um, and um, food plan, call me every day, uh, go to three meetings a week. That was a pretty good template for recovery. But this sponsor, just another, I guess, God was really trying to show me what my ultimate, my sponsor, who's been my sponsor for 25 years, always says to me, cannot screw it up. And I could not understand that. But as I'm telling my story today, I really see what she was saying. Because here I am, a brand newcomer. I'm totally afraid. I can't even, like, talk to anybody, you know, in town. And uh, she said, okay, dear, you know, so call me at this certain time. So I did, and I gave her my food, and I called her for about three days. And then she said, dear, I'm going to have to release you with love. Yeah, the third day. Um, because, uh, and I suggest you get a sponsor at the very next meeting. She, did, she could not deal with my eating one a food that was not on the food plan. It was really an innocent error, but... You know, that sounds pretty bad. A newcomer might just leave, but no. 
I, I got a sponsor at the very next meeting, and uh, that's, she's still my sponsor 25 years later. So that was really, really an interesting beginning. Um, I felt like in that first year I didn't really have much recovery, and I think that we've really matured a lot. Our fellowship has really matured. We have so much experience, strength, and hope now. I mean, I hear people talking about having clarity about abstinence, but at that time it was very confusing about, uh, well, let me just say that food is baffling. You know, in, our, in the big book Promises, it says we all intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Well, food baffles me. So it's not, and I think it still baffles most of us, you know. So it's not like we really got it straight now, powerless over food, but it seems like we now have uh, more experience, strength, and hope about the function of food plans and what abstinence is um, on a spiritual level and how that might relate to food. And that there's just much more tolerance and inclusion uh, with that dimension of the program on our physical level. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, then my second sponsor, which we never talked about food, ever. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I talked to her, but then she would just, you know, start sharing principles with me, but very tailored, you know, tailored to me, like you can't screw it up, because I was, I identified with Atlas, you know, that mythical God who carries the world on his shoulder. I really did literally have that image. The other image that I identified with was Sisyphus. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Sisyphus was doomed to roll a boulder up a hill and then it would roll back down, and he would have to roll it up again, and that's all that he had to do that into eternity. And that's what I felt my life was like. That's where I like. That's that's what I thought it was like, and felt it was like, and that's where I started. So I've come a long ways. For one thing, I totally don't feel like Atlas. I get smaller by the day, not in my body, but my my idea of what what my role is in this world. You know, and it's wonderful. You know, and I'll get to that a little later. You know, my what my mission is. My mission is just to be me and do what I can right here. You know, and uh, and I don't have to carry the world on my shoulders. And I'm certainly not doomed to a life of futility. You know, another promise is that our that we'll have. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this one for some reason. That uh, you know, our our life will have purpose and meaning. And that's absolutely true. So those are vast, radical changes. And also, I'm not a slave to food anymore. And yes, I did lose the weight. Mm-hmm. I did. It, um, I'm so glad we've come this far with our, the physical part of our recovery. It's really funny that I'm talking about this because I don't usually focus so much on it. But it was really very difficult with all the food plans, and I did the really rigid ones. You can imagine that was a pretty good fit for me. So, you know, I did gray sheet for five years. Gray sheet was like the first 30 days of a, a very restrictive plan that's used in, a, in a, another OA fellowship, um, the how. It's the how approach. And then later I did do the how food plan, for, which was healthier, but still it was extremely rigid for seven years. And uh, I don't think I ever had a slip. Yeah, wow. You know, that's, 
That sounds wonderful, but you know what happened to me was, even though I was never eating, one of the things was that sugar and white flour, which I took to a very literal extent, had to be fifth or low on the ingredients list. And eating like that and being a normal body weight, a little more slender than I am now, I became a diabetic. Now, that was really unfair. (laughs) You know, that was really uncalled for. And I had been in program because, you see, after I'd been in program for, let's see, 14, 15 years, that's when I became a diabetic. Uh, For one thing, the food plan that I was eating had become somewhat of a, it had become an entity in itself. You know, it was almost like, it had quite a bit of power in my life. Yeah. And I don't think God t- has re- takes retribution, but I think we do get to evolve spiritually. And that another thing my sponsor always says is that my experiences are exactly right for my spiritual growth. All of my experiences are exactly right for my spiritual growth. Kind of, kind of rough, but also kind of comforting, you know. Like, oh, this isn't a mistake. Oh, I'm not screwing up. Um, so I became a diabetic, a type 1 diabetic. I wear an insulin pump, but it really, I could not eat that food plan because it just it didn't work with my medical problems. So I had to, uh, it was a huge new surrender. Uh, and I was really just like starting over. And my, my compulsion reactivated when, when before the diabetes was um, diagnosed. I, one of the symptoms of that, the kind that I got is this ravenous appetite because your cells are starving, you know. And uh, I had that symptom long enough to reignite the compulsion which had been asleep for so many years. So I was one angry woman. Not a mountain of rage, but um, it wasn't one I wanted. <laughs> but it did lead me on an amazing healing path. And I mean, I only say that having come out the other side because I had to be really stay close to the program, I had to have a lot of support from people in these rooms to learn how to accept flexibility in my food plan and uh, trust. That takes so much trust, but really, that's kind of tailor-made for me because where was I, you know, I I came from finding security and rigidity, but there's a lot of limitations to that, and right outside the rigid boundaries is all that fear. So now that I'm living, uh, have had to become more flexible and more spontaneous with God, really, more open-minded, more humble, more accepting of imperfection, you know, I'm more relaxed and I'm not as fearful. I don't feel like I'm controlling something I'm going to lose control of. I know, it taught me I'm out of control. You know, I thought, when I came in, I knew I was powerless, but I find, for me, it's an on relearning of the lessons, you know, because it, it's hard to grasp powerlessness, especially when things are going well. Um, but I think I really, uh, finally, I had lots and lots of lessons in that, and it's made me a lot gentler with myself and with others, and I'm really grateful for that, because now I feel very connected to people. I'm not afraid of people. I, I'm very confident expressing my feelings to people. I, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable with people. But I know, who, you know, it's not an issue. It's just really not an issue for me, uh, mostly. I mean, there, sometimes, of course, it is, but 
uh, in general, I would say I'm pretty comfortable. Um, so, you know, basically, I, um, lot of, there's a lot of life, living that goes on in 25 years. It's uh, not half my life yet, but I was uh, 31 when I came into this program. And so most of my life emanates from, except for my family, emanates from OA, uh, my friends, how I've grown uh, professionally, personally. Uh, it's this 12-step program is an awesome template for living, and it never it has never ceased to interest me. The process of trying to practice these principles in all my affairs and how alive the steps seem to me, and how they keep coming alive, and that's what I consider spiritual awakening. Is I keep reawakening, and, and I do f- fall asleep in a spiritual sense. And I mean, I think that's. I used to really be upset with myself, you know, in the beginning, the first few years of my recovery, because I really thought, I always thought I was screwing up, you know, and I should be doing something different. So I was given this sponsor who had, that was one of her mantras, you can't screw it up. Why? Because you don't have that kind of power. (laughs) Boy, that went right over my head for years. But it was deeply comforting. Even though I, and that's one thing I also learned is that I don't have to understand to be helped, to be comforted, to be able to take action. And that's, that's a miracle because my intellect was kind of a, that was my main tool. You know, I made a point of being a quick study and uh, learned easily and so naturally I would select that as my main tool. But you know, it didn't fix my compulsive reading. It didn't enable me to have a good relationship with that first, or a sustainable. We had a good relationship, but it wasn't sustainable because it came to a point where there were a lot of things I just didn't know how to deal with. So, um, and what, believe me, it wasn't that clear then. But um, I've just been kind of swept along in my life, uh, especially. And since I've been in program, I can keep coming back to the gratitude for what my experiences are. Um, I guess that's really backing off from judgment, you know, because I don't really know which are good and bad experiences. I know when it hurts, that's a miracle, too. Oh, yeah, when I came into this room, well, I knew I was mad, but mostly that's all I was. I didn't know if I was sad. Um, You know, I couldn't tell, I couldn't differentiate among my feelings. I certainly didn't know when I was feeling ashamed, which actually I learned was a big part of what I was dealing with. Uh, I really couldn't admit that I was afraid that would make me too vulnerable. So, you know, in program I've learned to to differentiate among my feelings. Inventory really helped me with that. Uh, You know, I really like the big book inventory. I've done uh, four, so let's see, let's work through the steps. Uh, So, you know, you heard my first step, and... um, Really, my second step, because I got hope, and that is the the spiritual principle behind the second step, is hope. And then the third step, I just keep doing. Just it's like an act of faith, and that might even be the principle behind that that step. Our OA um, 12 and 12, at one point, I didn't bring that book, does list all the principles behind the 12 steps. It's really beautiful if you want to look that up. Um, they really helped me to have them all reduced to one word. Uh, so I've done about, I think I've done four 
thorough inventories. That's not a lot in 25 years. Actually, the last one I did, um, I had other sponsors be besides the one that's been with me for 25 years because she moved to Colorado and she moved different places. And so, but when she would come back, we'd always we'd be connected like that, like no time had passed. And that's why I say she's always been my sponsor. But there were other people who helped me, helped me on my way. Another sponsor I had for seven years, and then one I had for three years, and that was actually a man, which was. I don't know. It just was, he just said, you know, Margo, are you asking me to sponsor you? One day when I, after I'd been diagnosed, diagnosed with a diabetes and I was, didn't know what to do. And the 12 step, or the 4 step inventory I did with him, uh, really was the last one I needed to do because he actually wrote down my defects of character as I was reading my inventory. And then he said, he helped me find the spiritual opposite and I actually carry it with me all the time. It's so beautiful. It's really all I need because it's all right there, you know. Uh, lack of acceptance, you know, self-acceptance, acceptance of God, God's acceptance, people-pleasing, God-pleasing. You know, it just goes right down the line. And so that was a very powerful fifth step that I did with him. The sixth step is, that's an interesting one because we're entirely ready. It's like passive, like, okay. But the thing is that, with experience, I became ready to have God remove these defects of character. But I really love what the sixth step says in our OA 12 and 12 because it really has a very gentle take on what our uh, defects of character are about. You know, the way it explains that they served us, they really did serve it and it served me. Uh, but then they ceased serving me. And that's all. That's all there is to it. But they stayed, you know, so I need God's help with that, with with character development, which is really another thing the big book says that steps are about, is character development. And then, you know, the seventh step, that's, that's not hard to take. Just humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And that's like a prayer. And there is a seventh step prayer. And then we also made a list of persons I had harmed. And um, I made amends to them. Um, Direct amends. And then the maintenance steps, you know, contain that you take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Um, and I work that all the time because, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm always just, things come up, you know. I'm in pain. I'm depressed. I'm, someone thinks someone's angry at me or whatever. So I get to inventory that. It usually comes back to my defects of character. But it's so wonderful because with that step, I can keep it clean, and I don't have to. I don't have to worry about things getting out of control. You know, I mean, in a spiritual sense, I don't have to worry about my my spiritual household getting dirty. Not dirty in a pejorative sense, but getting where I built up a lot of resentments because I had a lot of resentments. So the fourth step, I was going to refer to the fourth step in the big book. I I really like the structure of this one, even though I've done other ones, because especially for the newcomer who doesn't know of one feeling from another. It's to start with your resentments. Now, most of us come in and we have resentments that we have access to. <laughs> start with those and just write them down. A list, right? And then it says, oh, and, and, and review your fears and write those down too. Well, that's a good one too because actually once, you know, I pretty soon I started to see what I was afraid of, especially going to meetings. You start to, you know, I started to hear things and realize, oh, yeah. And then it tells us to do a sex inventory because it says all of us, we're human beings, all of us 
have issues in that area. We wouldn't be human beings if we weren't. This big book is so intensely reassuring. It makes me feel okay about being a human being. And it gives me hope for solving my living problem. And as I've learned to live more in alignment with my higher power, as I, as I experience my higher power through, the, through the, the steps and traditions, my food became less of a tool and the addiction can be removed. But it really is a remission because it, it does come back sometimes, the obsession, the compulsion does come back. But if I keep coming back, uh, I can keep having recovery. And so that really is my bottom line, is keep coming back. I abstain from leaving. That can be by, you know, I can keep coming back by coming to a meeting, making a phone call, picking up a piece of literature, remembering God. That's keep, you know, coming back. And that stuff helps us cultivate that relationship with a higher power. And, and what to seek. It's such a relief. Oh, just seek knowledge of his will for us. And the power to carry it. Oh, okay, that's simple. Improve. And then the 12th step is, really the 12th step is a lot of fun. <laughs> because, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Wow, cool. Okay. Uh, you know, we, car- we sought to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. And that just tells me exactly what my life is to be about. That's, that's it right there. So when I go to work and I do my job and I start getting all like, like Enda, what, how they're treating me and what I'm not getting and blah, blah, blah. You know, like recently this week I realized, oh, I hadn't thought about the fact for a, for a long time that my employer is God. And my job is my work where I get to serve my higher power and my fellows. And it was like, oh, that was an amazing attitude you know, adjustment. Just so, that quickly, that, that awareness, those are the miracles, are the, for me, are the awareness. And also, many miracles. I used to wonder why there were no miracles in modern times, you know. <laughs> you know? The Bible's full of, when I grew up, with the Bible was the, the holy book or the spiritual book that informed my, my youth and the people I come from. Um, there were always miracles in there. And miracles happen every day. And, and I think everybody in these rooms who sticks around for a while knows it. And how beautiful is that? And then to have the clarity to see the miracles. And the humility to hear that, it is, hear that, what we're, you know, that something we're experiencing is a miracle. The open-mindedness that comes. You know, the honesty and the willingness. That's the how of the program. The honesty open-mindedness and willingness. That's a really nice acronym. How? Um, That's also in the big book. Um, That's a good book, the big book. I highly recommend. This is my original big book. (laughs) I have a lot of others, but this one I got in 1981. And this is my spiritual path. This is my... I really, I really do live this program, and I love this program, and I am truly so grateful to this program. Um, And, um, you know, I wish that this wonderful, uplifted place that I feel I'm in right now were my everyday experience, but, you know, it's not. I mean, I'm out there just trudging the road of happy destiny.
That's what it is. It tells us right here. We trudge the road of happy, this is it, happy destiny right here. So it kind of works out real well for me because, um, you know, I'm still an addict and I still suffer and have trouble with my emotions. But I'm not where I was 25 years ago. And I uh, just really, really encourage everyone to keep coming back to identify with, our, with this disease and uh, just keep coming back. It works. Period. Can't screw it up. So thank you. Yeah, we have a few minutes uh, for questions now. Yes, give us your name and question. Walter, you. Thank you for your share. Can you talk about how you work step 11? Yes. Uh, Walter's question was, how do I talk about how I work step 11? Currently, I work it pretty organically. I find that I pray and get quiet pretty spontaneously uh, from time to time. And recently, I took on a new sponsee, and through her, I started remembering to say the serenity prayer. Um, I always use the, the prayer and meditation times in meetings. I really let myself be taken into prayer and meditation at those times. Through the years, I've done some real intensive things, and I, I would love to get back to it, actually. But the first several years, I, I did very deliberate meditation. I would sit and meditate formally. I have a bookshelf full of uh, one uh, spiritual man, his writings, and that helped me a lot. And since then, I've had other spiritual teachers that have helped me with the 11th step uh, to develop you know, improving my conscious contact with God. And for me, the consciousness is the thing. That's what I've gotten in these rooms is consciousness and uh, God consciousness, you know, and access to God consciousness um, and prayer and meditation. It just keeps telling me that those are the tools. So I just keep coming back to the 11th step. And right now it's pretty organic how I do it, spontaneous. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering how your relationships with men changed during the 25 years that you've been in the program. Particularly, let's say, your relationship, let's say with your ex, you've seen you these past 25 years. How, how, how did you change? <laughs> I'm laughing because you really opened up a huge part of my history that I didn't address. What's your name? Shabby. I thought it was Shabby, but I didn't want to say it into the tape wrong, Shabby. Shabby's question was, you know, how has my relationship with men been and changed through the 25 years and, um, you know, my relationship with my ex-husband. I have another ex-husband, too, because I went back and married the boy that I had my son with because he came back into my life and he wasn't any more well then either, but... It did help me get into Al-Anon, so that was good. Um, But between when I came into program one year later, um, I uh, the symptom of trouble in my marriage was that uh, my passion died, and I was going to a women's stag meeting. There were a lot of lesbians there, and. you know, I fell in love with women, and then I ended up getting involved with a woman, 
and that's when things really fell apart in my, with my husband. I mean, I wasn't involved while I was with him, but it was just a very rapid sequence of events. And um, and then I was a strident lesbian for um, so I had no relationships with men as little as possible. But I did have uh, a wonderful son and people who kept that bridge to the opposite sex open for me, which was a gift. Uh, so for how many years? Uh, 1982 until... Well, there was that one marriage, 18-month marriage, to my son's father, and then in in there. And um, until 2004. And then I took up ballroom dancing, and... Uh, I was dancing with men, and that really enabled me to do a lot of healing around men. Um, I never thought that lesbianism was about healing, but it certainly was. Um, I never thought that I wouldn't be a lesbian. I just, it's just what it was, and it was really good, good to me and good for me. Uh, but after I started dancing, all this healing started coming, believing it wasn't comfortable. And then I actually ended up getting in a relationship with a man um, a couple years ago, and sort of a brief relationship, but it was very, very healing. And uh, and now I just feel really relaxed. I feel very open to men. I feel I just feel very relaxed. And I don't really I'm not really seeking a relationship right now. But I think that had more has to do with my age. I've had a lot of relationships. I'm 56. I'm going to be a grandmother. I. I'm very happy. I dance. My life is very free and unencumbered. Uh, my ex-husband, the first one, we were various. We remained pretty acrimonious and estranged. Um, that's another uh, other issues. But um, even that's we're having a little communication now. You know, healing can always come. So that's kind of the brief answer. It's <laughs> a big area. But thank you for asking that because I didn't want deliberately. Uh, jump over what can be very significant and I know through those years it was very important for me to know who was a lesbian because I was and it was very important to me for my healing and let's see how we're doing John we're right there huh okay thank you very much it's been a wonderful meeting